This is my journey, inspired one story at a time. A library of leaders was created. It began as a journey to learn. As time went on, it began to grow. All it needed was a platform, and this podcast was created to listen, to inspire, to share. I am a storyteller, and this is my journey. Welcome to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. My name is Steve Anderson, and I'm your host. And today our guest is Kelly Sanders. Kelly Sanders is the president, CEO of Movement for Life, which is a large physical therapy company. And she tells her story about her journey, which was a very crooked path to the role of CEO. She shares with us um, how she kind of started out uh, with one idea and, and, and came to uh, adopt another. Talks about her business, uh, how it's structured, and, and how that structure has really led to a major buy-in uh, with, with the employees of her company. And, and not that they didn't have that before, but it even uh, made it more so. She shares with us her feelings about uh, her role as, as, uh, with women in leadership and, and how uh, she rose to that level. And it's just a really interesting, insightful interview. I think you're really going to enjoy it. I've known Kelly for a long time. I've uh, been exposed to uh, her, her uh, growth as far as uh, getting to the position she's in now. And uh, she uh, went to work for a guy by the name of Jim Glenn Jr., who was one of my early interviews on this podcast way back about, gosh, probably almost been two or three years ago. Uh, and Jim's just a great leader and a, a very uh, supportive guy and, and one who really, really believes in a leader's role is to grow other leaders. And he certainly has uh, helped do, do that with Kelly. She is amazing in her own right. Uh, very enjoyable to talk to. Love seeing her when we run into each other um, at, at different meetings and so on. And I think you just really enjoy this episode. So uh, let's get right into it and let's uh, let's talk to Kelly Sanders. Hi, Kelly. Welcome to the program. It's great to have you today. Hi, Steve. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. So why don't you just start out by now you're currently the CEO of Movement for Life. And uh, that's based in uh, San Luis Obispo, California. And from what I understand, you're actually uh, from the Central Coast area. Is that correct? It is. I grew up here um, from the point of being about two years old. So went to school here um, all through high school and then went away for college for a little bit and had the opportunity to come back in 2001. So very happy to be back. I really enjoy this area. That's great. Now, you're a USC graduate, correct? So uh, uh, tell me how uh, that, that came to be. I did go to USC for graduate school. Um, honestly, I applied to four or five PT schools, and it was the one I got into. So um, had a great experience at USC, really uh, enjoyed just the camaraderie, the different networking opportunities that were available, and the people from many walks of life that I had the opportunity to meet there and still still get to do some networking uh, as a family. We're still pretty avid Trojan fans, so didn't obviously do football this year, but have continued to stay connected with, with that part of our lives. I met my husband there, so that's a special part of our history as well. He was in the class ahead of me. Yeah, that's great. Now, being the, the, are you the CEO or the president, and I'm using the terms correctly? 
uh, I currently serve as the president, but when we need the right CEO, it's a slash CEO on documents and filings. So, okay, so right both ways, I guess. So to uh, basically, you're the head of the company, you're leading the company. So what has it been like uh, leading uh, a company through this uh, COVID-19 crisis that we're in? That's, uh, gosh, it's just uh, no one, no one predicted that. So um, how did you, how are you doing with it? I think we're doing really well, and I think that's a testament to the people that are on our team and the clinic directors we have, uh, as well as our admin support team. So um, in terms of how it's been, I would say, uh, first and foremost, it's been one of the biggest professional learning uh, opportunities I've had in my life. Uh, it's been a humbling experience, uh, but but it's also been one of just many, many silver linings. I think as a company, we're more grateful. I think we understand a lot about our practice that that COVID really sort of held the mirror up on. Um, but but overall, I, I, I listened to my course fields podcast. And while not anything I would like to repeat for the sake of our team, I think the lessons I learned and some of the, I don't know if it's adrenaline, but some of the engagement that it's required has, has been positive in a hard time. So something that I think we will emerge from much stronger as an organization, as a team. And how would you describe your leadership style? If I were to ask you the people that work with you, uh, how would they describe it? Um, I think I'm very hands-on, probably some days too hands-on <laughs> with some things. Um, I, I hope it's somewhat graceful, but I think it's probably authentic at best. I, I'm pretty honest. I share a lot in terms of how I'm feeling about things with those closest to me. Um, but I hope it's one of authenticity and transparency. We share our, our wins and our losses pretty equally across the board. And um, I think the biggest thing that I'm trying to change more through this process is just the self-awareness, just really trying to step back and remove some of the emotion in a very emotionally charged time and be aware of what I'm feeling and and sharing those things with the people around us. Because I think through COVID, the thing that really that really came to light was just that our team has been a really stable part of many people's lives over the last 20 years. And the fact that, you know, in those first initial days of COVID, it was, it was probably less stable than it's ever been, even from the very early days of the company and being able to have those conversations through tears with some people through really big fears, I, I think is probably the, the, most important thing I try to do, at least when I lead, is just try to be honest and authentic and meet people hopefully where they are and have the conversation about, okay, what is worst case? What is best case? How are we, what do we need to deal with? And I hope people can come to me with those concerns um, and that we have those honest conversations. So probably said a lot of things in that, but I hope uh, the biggest things in terms of my leadership style that's apparent is just the authenticity that I'm going to give you the honest answer, whether it's good or bad, and, and we'll take it from there in terms of how we approach next steps. And and when we're talking about uh, you know your leadership style, what is your meeting approach with your executive team? Is it real formal? Do you meet on a regular basis? Is it as needed? Uh, explain that to us a little bit. Sure. 
Uh, so I would say in the meetings, it's pretty informal, but we do meet on a regular basis. Uh, we have a team meeting every week. Sometimes it's 15 minutes. Sometimes it's an hour and 15 minutes. Uh, I think the biggest thing we're trying to work towards now is a more efficient meeting style. And then uh, within our teams, any of our direct reports or teams that we lead on our support team, we have a second meeting uh, that week. So every week, every team, so HR, accounting, billing, they're having their own what we call orange team meetings, and those happen weekly. Um, the person that oversees that department leads it. So, for example, I um, still work directly with our uh, revenue cycle team and our accounting team. And so I generally, in our clinical team, I should say, and I generally attend those meetings, but not all the time because we do have very, uh, very capable leaders leading each of those. So our management or executive team lead, uh, leads meet one time per week. There's five of us. And it is a formal time that we do on a regular basis. And, and what drove you to move toward the chief executive officer role? I mean, was it by design or did it just happen organically or tell me about the journey? Oh my gosh. Uh, no, not at all by design, or at least not my design. Um, if you would have asked me in PT school, uh, PT school was my backup plan. I had planned to be an athletic trainer and I knew I, at that time, I thought I wanted to work in division one athletics. And so I was applying to PT school as well as graduate programs in athletic training, and I got into PT school first. So I did that, uh, met my husband, Jason, as I mentioned, in PT school, and we were um, looking for jobs. And where I had the opportunity to be an athletic trainer in the collegiate setting, he couldn't find a job. I graduated around the Balanced Budget Act time, and so PT jobs were scarce. Yeah. So... So uh, I went to my fallback plan, which has probably been one of the things I'm really grateful for professionally and started in physical therapy. And um, in that role, I was in a private practice. I was asked to start or be the first resident in a developing residency program with Kaiser down in Southern California. So it was kind of the first time private practices really got involved in residency um, and on any formal level. So I got to do that, which was not part of my plan. <laughs> so I did that in orthopedics. And then they asked me uh, to lead a geriatric uh, program in the practice, which again, leadership, physical therapy, and geriatrics were not at all on my plate. <laughs> uh, but but um, fortunately, for whatever reason in my life, I went away from my very rigid plan, everything type of approach to life and just took the opportunity. And I'm really grateful that I did because I never would have thought I'd want to be in a management position. And so for me, it was something that occurred organically because I was given opportunities. And for one reason or another, I didn't say no, which was not like me in my early 20s. I thought I really had a plan. This is what was going to happen this year, this year, and this year. And I am so off plan right now. I try not to plan more than about 18 months into the future and try to just keep a, a vision or of things I'd like to achieve in my head, but try to remain pretty open because I, I definitely think as I look back at the last 20 plus years in my career, none of the things that I've uh, derived the most enjoyment from or where I think I've been most effective have anything to do with the original plan. So uh, that was my journey. Um, but anyway, in terms of how I got to this position, I was working in a private practice and uh, Jim Glenn, who is our founder, came and was consulting and I had the opportunity to meet him. He was starting practices on the central coast of California, uh, as you mentioned earlier, where 
uh, my husband, Jason, and I knew at some point we'd want to move back to, and we wanted to have a family in that area. So uh, through working with Jim, uh, because he was consulting in the practice and I was heading one of the programs that he was helping us on, uh, I got to know him and eventually uh, came to work for him. So Jason and I opened uh, the fourth clinic for Movement for Life back in 2001 together. Uh, Jason was a clinic director and I was a staff therapist. And then about a year later, Jim asked if I would be interested in running a clinic. So I had the opportunity to do that. And then um, probably a couple of years later, uh, we decided we'd want to have a family at some point. And this is probably one of the decisions as a female that I'm the least proud of in terms of the thought process I took. I decided that we wanted to have a family and I couldn't be a clinic director anymore. And I, that was such a short-sighted, small-minded thought, I think, for me at that time. Um, but I just really had in my mind that I needed to do this different thing to have a family the way that I thought it needed to look in my mind. Again, going back to my very fixed mindset in terms of my professional development plan as well. And um, so I proposed to Jim, the company was growing, and I said, I think there's a need for some uh, different clinical development initiatives. Uh, we have some compliance things I, I think I can help with. Not that we weren't compliant, but we were growing and needed more administrative support in the clinical realm. So um, Jim, being the person he was, was super open-minded and, and said, okay, great. What does that look like? And let me develop this role and gave me the title of director of clinical operations. But I was able to work from home um, two or three days a week, and I'd come in the office for two or three long days. And I was able to balance that. Uh, the part that I'm not very proud of is I never even gave Jim the opportunity to, or I never even took the opportunity to talk to him about staying in that director role. And um, as a female, that really bothers me because Jim would have been and continues to be one of the most supportive people to do things like that. And, and I don't think he would have blinked. He probably would have laughed at me um, and gotten me back on course. But um as a female leader, it's a story that I share a lot because I, I think we limit ourselves sometimes with preconceived notions of how others might take some of the plans we have. So um, it worked out very well for me because I love what I get to do in my role then and now because that role eventually turned into um, Jim asking me to take over the president role as he got more involved in national initiatives. Um, and I've been in that role for well over a decade now. Um, so that's how I got to the role I'm in. Uh, super grateful for the people who supported me to get there um, and allowed me the opportunity to lead. Uh, but just a side story about one of my, one of the decisions I'm less proud of in terms of how I got there. Well, Jim's an amazing leader. He certainly is. But, but it's an amazing story too, that you, you know, share with us that experience because, uh, and now, uh, well, how many, how many clinics does uh, Movement for Life have now? Oh, we have 26. Okay, so you have 26 clinics, and, and you're in a, in a the CEO or president position now. And and it, it, it's an interesting story because unless I'm uninformed, I think uh, you and Michelle Colley probably on the East Coast are the only two women I'm aware of in the private practice physical therapy world that run that large of multi, um, multi-site uh, companies. So um, I think it's an interesting journey how you, you felt like you stepped back, but yet here you are in the, in the driver's seat now and, and even nationally um, uh, very high, uh, you know, compared to others. So it's, it's interesting how you got there. It, it is. And I, and I do, um, 
my husband's been extremely supportive. I was raised in a very supportive family uh, growing up in a small business. I, it never even occurred to me that there were things I couldn't do. That was just not something. I mean, my brother and I always were treated extremely equally and um, we were both encouraged to dream. So I think um, it's an interesting story. And it's interesting that I even had that thought in my head because that was not at all the the culture that I was working within. So I, um, I'm, I'm really glad I had the people around me supporting me and encouraging me. Um, Jason and Jim probably being huge, huge people that did that as well as many other people in the organization. So now that you're in that role and people see you and look up to you, do you feel uh, pressure or do you feel, um, do you feel like there's, there's, um, uh, you know, that you have to kind of stand up to, to level for others and say, you know, this is how it's done. And look, I'm the example. How, How does that feel as a, you know, as a female leader? I don't, I don't think there's any pressure. That's definitely not something that I feel within our team. And I think that's a huge attribute to the people that I've had the opportunity to work with. I do feel a sense of responsibility, um, whether women or not. I feel like there's certain things uh, in female leadership that I have a responsibility to be candid on. And then I also just feel like as any leader, <clears throat> and I think COVID COVID really brought that to my attention to just a responsibility to run a sound company where the, you know, right now the hundreds of families that depend on this thing working at Movement for Life, that's, that's the responsibility. I think I feel if there's anything close to pressure. Um, but in terms of women in leadership, I, I do feel a responsibility to share some of what I consider at least personally, the, the mistakes or the, the, um, the lack of faith I had in people around me, which really wasn't anything to do with faith in people around me. It was faith in myself. And so I think that candor is very important. Uh, but I also feel like as female leaders, the, the biggest thing that I hope people hear is that as females, we aren't in competition with each other. And, and that's probably the biggest thing I have felt. I've never, uh, specifically in, in my professional career, which again is very much my story, had an issue with a male holding me back. I unfortunately cannot say that about females around me. Fortunately, they're none of the people I work with or have the opportunity to work with daily at this point in my life. Uh, But I will say in the first decade of my career, women uh, were harder uh, on me, I think, and not in a positive growth way, but in a I'm competing with you way. Um, than any man has ever been to me. But again, my personal story, but I do think as women, we need to be nothing but supportive of each other in the goals that we're trying to achieve. And I I don't know if we're as good at that as we always think we are. So that's, that's probably the thing that I feel a pretty big responsibility to be vocal about. Um, when I, when I see it happening or when I feel it happening in, in a very respectful manner, but say, you know, is there a different way to approach this? Or are there other reasons that are driving you to act this way? Or this is what I'm feeling in this conversation. Yeah. So, uh, uh, since we're on this topic, I mean, how do you see like the uh, um, Kamala Harris, you know, uh, uh, you know, getting the position of VP elect and, and uh, even today, I don't know if you saw it on the news, but Emily Harrington uh, just free climbed El Capitan. Uh, to be the first uh, woman to do that. And so it's, uh, does that give you inspiration? And do you look at those, those people as, uh, uh, you know, uh, forging the way, so to speak? 
They both they both are inspiring for for similar reasons. I think it is important that as women we do great things and inspire others to as well. I do think uh, they both have responsibilities to do the jobs well. And I think there's probably more pressure on them than anyone else would be in that role. Um, but I think at the same time, and again, this is just my personal feeling, the question I always want to make sure when we're voting for a candidate or when we're selecting a person for a position is it the best person for the job? Because I think one thing, and not in this organization where I work professionally, but in other things outside of here in my life, I've been asked to do or lead. Um, I, I will say, if I'm super honest, some of the initiatives make me question, am I, am I being asked because I'm a female or am I being asked because I'm the best person for this job? Um, and, and that's not always a great feeling. And some of that admittedly could be my own insecurities. Um, but I, I do feel like it's important to do things, I, I guess, when you're looking at positions or things that, that we're trying to select the best person. And hopefully it's always going to include equal, you know, equal candidacy of gender, uh, culture, background, et cetera. Um, and I know that doesn't always happen. And there are instances where we have to try to break those glass ceilings. Um, but I know just personally, and I've been in a couple situations where I've, I really had to challenge the person and say, okay, what are the objectives of bringing me into this environment or board or whatever it may be? Uh, because I need to know that for myself. Well, thanks for sharing that. That's really a, a really great insight. And uh, thank you for being willing to go there. Let's talk a little bit about your company now, because uh, it's it's got a very unique structure and it's uh, it's an ESOP, is it not? Could you just explain that a little bit for us and kind of uh, describe what it's like and why you decided to go in that direction? Sure. So, so we are an ESOP and it's a retirement plan, but it, but basically what it does is there's a trust that holds um, ownership of the company. At this point, we're 56% owned by that trust. So the majority of the trust is, uh, or I'm sorry, the majority of the company is owned by this ESOP trust, uh, which is the employees. So that's a really exciting thing for us. Um, from the beginning of the organization, we've always had that ownership mentality. Uh, the way Jim set up our director bonus structure, it was always, you know, you had a stake in your clinic in terms of how our directors and leaders are paid. But um, this was something we did in 2015 for a lot of different reasons. Um, one, it's always been our culture. Uh, two, we were looking for a way to pass the the organization down to the next generation as, as Jim was partially exiting the company. Um, and so it was a good strategy for that. Um, but also because we wanted to be sure that um, being a PT owned company, we, we realized that PTs are obviously a driving force and movement for life, but there's a lot of people that are not just in physical therapist positions that have also helped us be successful. And the ESOP allowed us to bring in owners outside of those with a PT degree. So that was another important reason for us. And then probably the last one was as we saw consolidation starting, um, we started to get questions from people and, and had this legacy practice um, in mind that Jim had laid out from the beginning with all of us. But it's we started to, to get the question, but are you going to sell to a big company? What is, what is the path for movement for life? How long you know, are you going to keep having people buy in at two or three or 5%? What, what's going to happen? 
And most of it was from newer grads that had seen different changes in their uh, PT school classmates one to two years into the workforce. So it also allowed us to make a very concrete decision uh, to say, no, that that's not the, at least that's not the strategy we're pursuing. And if by you know, any market force change or anything happens where we do need to sell, everyone benefits from the sale of that, of the practice. Yeah, that, that's awesome. And, you know, I come from a legacy uh, style company as well. I'm just wondering, how did you notice any change in employees' attitudes or behaviors once you switched to an ESOP? Is there anything you can look at and say it, it made a difference in that way? <laughs> We have. Um, there have been a lot of different changes, um, and, and I think they're different for different people. I, I will say it takes time to make that change, and I think we were already partway there. Um, but it's everything from, uh, I know, Jason, I still clearly remember about a year into it, Jason came home one night, and he's like, well, I guess I don't get to pick what we have for lunch in the clinic anymore. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, we're an ESOP now, and my staff said we're buying pizza no more of this fancy lunch, you know, where it costs $15 a person because they're watching their dollars. And I said, well, good for them. Um, so we've had those ty- a lot of those type of anecdotal stories. It's just an awareness of, wow, when we buy lunch, it's, you know, $250 for the whole staff to eat. Just different, just different awareness items that have come through it. Um, but then there's also things where people, sh- I think, share ideas more than they did in the past. And, and they have questions, which are good questions. Like, why did we contribute this much to the retirement? Because we still have a profit sharing plan. Why did we contribute this much? And what are we considering, um, you know, in terms of the next generation? So there've been a lot of questions, uh, that have sparked a great dialogue that I don't remember having to the degree we have um, before we changed over to an ESOP 25- in 2015. Yeah, so yeah. I think those have all been really positive things. And then through COVID, I, I have never seen a team work so hard and in the, in the heart of really hard times, um, just been more pleased and honored to work with a group of people that we had to, we, we went from, um, 378 employees at the beginning of March to 140 at the end of March uh, from layoffs. Fortunately, many of them were short-term. But that was the most devastating thing I've ever been through since I've been here since um, 2001. I think I said the company started in 2001. We actually started in 99, but I've been here almost 20 years. And I don't remember doing a layoff, let alone to that degree. Um, but but I think being an ESOP and people saying we've got to fight to get these people back, I, I have I have just seen um, amazing feats of work ethic and commitment through this time, and I, I think being an ESOP is a big part of that. That they all uh, felt like this is what we need to do, guys, to get back to who we are as an organization and get these people back on our team. So are you back? Were you able to hire most of them back? Did you keep the team intact pretty much? For the most part, we have um, nearly all of the pro- most of the professional staff is back. Um, people people had some life changing events. We had someone change from PT to go back to medical school. So there there have been some of those types of just. I, I think I would need to go on a different path. But for the most part, um, most of our team is back. Um, a lot of our support staff went on to do other things. Uh, a lot of because their college campuses are online or moving home, but. Um, for the most part, yes, uh, they, they've fought a great fight and, and we're doing pretty well. We're about at 85% of capacity 
which is exciting. That's great. Given where, given where life is right now. <laughs> right. So what's the hardest lesson you had to learn as the president of a growing company? Um, of a growing company? I, I think I've, <laughs> I think um, the, you had a guest on your show, uh, Errol, a couple of months ago. Yeah. And I think the emotional points he made about just controlling emotion has been the biggest lesson that I've learned that I, I think when you have the opportunity to serve and lead, um, in a company like I have, um, it's passionate. There's a lot of emotion, um, and a lot of it's good, but just pulling that out of it because you, every, every decision comes with an emotion for me in many ways, especially early on. And I think learning to try to pull the emotion out and be aware of that has been the the biggest challenge for me. Um, and, and I think the loneliness of being a leader has also been a, I don't want to say a challenge because I think I've, I've had the opportunity to figure out different ways to, to not combat that, but to deal with that. I think peer to peer has been a big part of it, but those were some of the things that I, I just really needed to learn how to deal with. Yeah, it's as a leader. It's lonely at the top, isn't it? Yeah, and I and I in our company it's not even the top, I guess, cuz we try not we try to not be real hierarchical here, but it is it's just the decisions and mostly like I said the responsibility, that's what wakes me up in the middle of the night. It, you know, if I can't sleep, it, I'm worrying about someone or something that's going to affect the human part. And I I just don't know how to I don't I've gotten much better at it, but I don't know how to remove that. And I think if I remove that, I'm probably not going to be a very good leader. So it's just li- learning to live with that, I guess. You know, it's uh, the CEO of Therapeutic Associates now who was my, the COO when I was the CEO there, uh, Todd Gifford. He explained it really well. He said that when you're the CEO of a company like that, you have this backpack on and it's always on. And it never comes off. And it doesn't matter how hard you try to get it off. And no one really understands that unless you've been in a position that you've had the backpack on. So I just think it's one of those things that is just, it, it goes with the territory. I think that's very well said. No, I, I agree. It is like the backpack. And there is no place you can go on vacation or, you know, drive or bike ride or run where you completely get to leave the backpack at home, I guess, is the part that I was, I was just not prepared for. And my dad, my dad is one of my most favorite people in the world. And, um, I got to watch him be a leader in a small business growing up and just the trials and tribulations. And, uh, when I told him, I'm like, you know, Jim asked me to be president and we were talking about it. And, um, he said, Kelly, you're going to do great, but the thing that's going to be the hardest for you is the people. And I was like, dad, you're nuts. I love people. And he just laughed. And he, he, he said, there's times in life where he doesn't say much. And it's always something um, that I've, I've started to become aware of when he doesn't say much, there's a lot under that. And, and the backpack for me is the people it's, I'm going to have to say no to people that I really care about and trust. And they're going to be mad at me. And that's for a moment, and that's going to be hard. And just the responsibility for those people. And, and that's probably the thing that, like I said, I just am still learning that lesson, figuring out how to carry it. You know, the people are the most rewarding part, but it's messy. You know, they're, they're they're (laughs) human beings, right? And Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's crazy. Let's, let's talk a little bit more about the emotional part. Cause I, I, I'm intrigued. I, you know, I think of myself as a leader. 
I think I'm a fairly emotional leader. You know, I, I think, uh, uh, you know, so I'm intrigued when you say control it and, and by the emotions, uh, what do you mean by that? I mean, by physically getting emotional or, or driving yourself crazy by worry too much, uh, dive into that emotional part a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So I don't usually have the physical part of it. I have just the emotional part of it or the reaction to it. And that's the part I've needed to learn to control or remove. And, um, and there was one, um, someone I count as one of my mentors, he had me do a section of our leadership track years ago. And it was on, um, it was on decision-making. And one of the big parts of, uh, the, ebook he had me listen to on it uh, was has always stayed with me and it's about uh, biases and most of them are emotional things like the overconfidence bias the recency effects people have on decision making sunk cost biases but for me that's where the emotion comes in is the decision making piece and questioning myself and so it's it's trying to when I say control it it's for me, trying to remove it and make the most objective decision I can and knowing when I have to remove all of it and when there's a part of it that you have to listen to because that's what keeps you human. That's what that's what makes me the leader I am, I think, is that I, I do have the human side. And I, I'm really lucky that on our management team, there's two people here that I um, that I can have those conversations with and say, am I, am I being too reactionary? Because I'm always trying to be proactive, but I know for me, when the emotion's getting high, I'm reacting. And that's when I need to have, a, you know, go on a walk with one of them or go stand in their office and get their take on it or call someone from my peer group. Because that's when I know the emotion is getting high and I need to find some means to control it or at least understand it and how it's affecting the decision that I have to make. Yeah, you know, I've talked about this a lot on this podcast and you know, it comes down to that right brain thinking and left brain thinking. And, and, you know, a lot of our examples of business leaders in the past has been that left brain side where we need to be more analytical and we, it's, it's, it's about business. It's not personal. And, you know, you just need to do this and that. And, and, um, you know, I think if you're going to deal with people and you put people first, which is what, you know, I think we all want to do, I think mm-hmm. you have to be willing to, to, you know, lead from the right brain a little bit and, and explore that and not not just try and shut it down all the time. So I think it's an interesting uh, dialogue and an interesting thought process of, of how do you do that without letting it run away, but yet, you know, also um, also finding the balance. I totally agree. Because I think if you shut it down too much, you become a robot. And, you know, so in our company, the word is corporate we're becoming too corporate. Um, and it's hard to look at scale and that human side. You, you've got to balance it. And it's not this, you always think it's, or in my head, I think it's going to be this linear path. Like I look at our growth and, and we've grown very organically with key people on our team who have shown promise. They understand the values of movement for life. They understand who we are. But that growth is not linear if that's how you're going to grow. And, and you know, I've definitely... Um, gotten critique for that, which I understand, but I don't know if understanding it necessarily means as a team, we want to change it because that is in the true fabric of movement for life. That is who we are. And so it, it, it's just knowing when is what's too much emotion and when, when are we leading 
for the people? And when, you know, when are we just making bad decisions because we're taking one person into account instead of the, the people as a whole in the organization? So um, it's, it's just a balance that I continue to learn and struggle yeah. with probably daily. Well, it's one of those things that's ever changing and you're never going to say, oh, I finally got it. It's a dynamic thing that comes and goes. That's for sure. What about uh, what about imposter syndrome? When you took over this company, did you have to work through that as well, or did, would you did you go in pretty confident? Um, oh my gosh, I would say I'm an introvert and probably not always confident. So I don't think I went in confident. And Jim had Jim is a very dynamic leader, and we lead differently. And so I, I mean, it took me a little while to get comfortable with that. Um, I, I will say he's very gracious and did step back, I think purposely in some ways. And I still vividly remember the first web call we did with the team. He was letting them know this change was happening. And he had me talk a little bit about some of the things I wanted to achieve. And I've never told him this and I probably need to, but I would have cringed if I was him. It's some of the things I said about accountability and just, I think it was just me being new, nervous. And, and he was such, he was so gracious at that time and, and just let me learn some of those things on my own. And I, I'm sure that was incredibly hard. Um, but I didn't, I didn't worry about it too much. Jim at that point was just very supportive of the transition and um, was open to me talking to him about it, saying things. And, and I think um, allowed me the space to figure out how I was going to be a leader. And it's different. I don't, if you've heard Jim speak, if you've talked to Jim, he has vision and ideas um, that are huge. And, and I, I don't have that. I probably have more of the execution and um, organization, but we're, we're just very different in how we approach it. I think he taught me a lot about people and, and how I wanted to care for them in terms of leading a team. And I think we have that in common. Uh, which has been, I think, a good constant between between that trade-off. But it's given me a lot to think of as I start to think of the next leader here and what I need to do and how I need to uh, support them in that role. And it doesn't look like an easy process. Have, having been through it, I'm sure you, you can relate on some oh, absolutely. levels. It seems hard. Well, that's why you know good leaders have good teams because uh, we're different. We all have strengths. We all have things we go to and, and we need others to bring out those other sides that that maybe isn't our gift. And so it's, it's you know, building a team is, is ex- extremely important as you've just described. So what is your strategic plan going forward? And, uh, you know, and with all this downward pressure that we seem to have in our, uh, in our profession with payment uh, for services, and it's, it's just always over your head. So from a strategic position, um, what, what, what do you do with that? You just forge ahead or do you come up with specific plans? What, 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 how are you dealing with that? I think it's a combination of both. We're definitely looking a lot at efficiency and that's one of our, probably top three lessons from COVID is um, we don't, we didn't need some of the support staff that we had. Uh, we were probably overstaffed in certain areas. So uh, I think efficiency is key, but, but not just operating with less staff, figuring out ways, looking at things like lean systems and processes and how, how do we operate efficiently, um, but not have it feel like we're all just working a lot harder um, the second thing is, I think there's so much in the digital space right now that we need to embrace as a profession. 
um, we we are spending a lot of time on that. Um, we work. We have a software product that um, we're using to really look at effectively evaluating musculoskeletal conditions, um, but then also really embracing things like telehealth. Uh, at, at the height of this uh, pandemic, we were seeing about 80% of our visits on telehealth for the, the highest week we were at. Um, and we've obviously, like many practices, scaled way back. But as we look at you know, whatever's coming right now, we have record cases, obviously, in the U.S. as we record this and in our counties. Um, so really embracing that digital piece, I think it's going to be important. I think telehealth is here to stay. It's not going away. I think as providers, we need to accept that. And, and I think there's a lot we can do to improve access. And we're still serving maybe 10% of the people that could benefit from our services. I just see telehealth and some of these digital uh, strategies that we can take as strengthening our brick and mortar practices, but also really getting out to the U.S. healthcare system, physical therapy, and showing them that we can be an enormous change agent in this musculoskeletal crisis we have in the U.S. We're uniquely qualified to do it. I think we have the training it takes, the backgrounds, but I don't think we're going to be able to really help to the degree we could if we don't embrace some of the digital factors that are out there or mediums to truly bring PT to all people. I would agree with you. That's, that's very well said. Describe what's been the, the most afraid you've ever been in your current position. The most afraid. That's a good question. Um, I think there's different things I've been afraid of, but I think, um, in the recent, you know, this whole recency effect recently, it was that night in March where I had to get on the phone with all of our clinic directors and I wasn't afraid of them, but it was, I just wanted to be the leader that they needed to tell them, you guys, we have to lay off half the staff or more than half the staff. If we're, that, that's, that's our best shot right now to get through this we've got to do this now because I don't know what stimulus is going to be available. I don't know where we are and we've got to figure out a way to get through this on our own two feet. And this is what we've mapped out. So I definitely, um, I, I had absolute confidence in them. I was sad for them, but I think the fear part for me was, Oh crap, is this the right call? But we have to make it and I've got to own it. Um, and so that's probably the, I mean, I still remember that Wednesday night sitting literally in my laundry room slash office that was going to be the new COVID office for Kelly while we worked from home, just staring at the computer and watching the minutes tick down. And the only question in my head was, please help this be the right decision. And, and I, you know, it's that 10% of you that's like, well, could we do something else? And we've gone through, I mean, the team here had gone through every option, but um, that was probably the most afraid I've been in a long time. And yeah. it was just making the call. Yeah, just crazy times, crazy times, that's for sure. Now, you've referred to it uh, a few times uh, in our talk today, but I'd like to discuss it a little more deeply. So you're a big fan of the peer-to-peer -peer groups. I am. Tell I'm us, a huge fan. Tell us a little bit about your group and what it's done for you and uh, uh, why do you think it's important to do a, like a mastermind approach like that? So our, our group... Um, has just we've all become really good friends. We've gone on two vacations together now. We've gotten to meet each other's families. Um, it, it's just been a nice combination of friendship and that professional collegiality as a leader I think you need. Um, so for me, 
um, they're a group that I can, I, I can literally call or text them and, and I, we all feel the same way anytime and they're going to get on the phone and help. Um, but they're, but we're also going to joke around. We're also going to be human with each other. Um, and, and I think that's rare because they understand carrying the backpack, like you just said. Um, so that's probably the thing I'm the biggest fan of, but, but the nice part of, of my group just particularly is I, I have uh, had the opportunity to just see their, pra- I mean, they've, they've been so gracious and opened up their practices. We've shared our biggest failures. We've shared our biggest successes. Uh, we can call each other out on things and, and I, there's no hard feelings. I, I, I've never worked with a group of professionals where I feel like we can be as honest and candid as I can be with this group. So I think that's why it's been so important for me. And it's also combated that lonely feeling. Um, So those are the the big things. It's also, we get to see like through COVID, um, Alan from our group is in Connecticut and I'm in California and um, the rest of our group, um, Keith, Joe and Rob are in the Midwest. So we saw COVID hit differently. And we were, we were actually all in Hawaii together um, the week this was all starting, right before the, the, the that, uh, second week of March for our annual vacation retreat together. And so it was cool to be together um, and I guess worry, if you will, <laughs> but talk about it a little bit and then be able to watch the progression as we got back. Because at that point, we were meeting weekly on a phone call just to share what was going on. And I, I think being able to share our stories was really powerful. Yeah. And, uh, and just so our listeners are aware too, you're the only woman in that group and, um, group of guys and you're just, uh, uh, clicking pretty well together. And that, that's awesome. I mean, that's what it's all about, right? When you can, uh, be vulnerable with each other and, uh, re- really build up a trust that, um, that is, uh, that, that's to be cherished. It really is. And, and we've been able to talk about those things together, you know, that, Yep, I'm the token girl, and um, and they're they're just they are the most supportive group um, that I that I've ever been in at that level. Um, so I I just really cherish the opportunity. I'm very grateful that PPS put this together. Um, so and I know you're a huge part of that. So thank you for that. Um, I, I just I'm really excited to see where it could go, and I, I think it's just a a huge gift as a leader to be able to have a group of people that you can have those discussions with. Yeah, that, that's for sure. So, you know, we're, we're, as you said, we're uh, recording this during the COVID crisis and we're, it looks like we're in our second wave. So assuming we can get through that and uh, the vaccine becomes available and, and we get back to whatever's going to be the new future, what are you excited about? What's the movement for life headed towards uh, uh, what, what's on the horizon? So we're really, we're excited about, I think, some of the opportunities COVID has created. So our um, our digital platform, Everflex Health, I, think, I know has more opportunities than we've ever had. And I think COVID has been a lot of that catalyst and that people have seen that we're not always going to be able to do in-clinic care. There's going to be things that come up and there, there might be some nice compliments to that. We're definitely not at all interested in replacing in-clinic care. But we are interested in expanding the footprint of physical therapy in the U.S. Uh, so that is 
very, very exciting to us, especially in the last few weeks. And then just the things we've learned in terms of working together. Um, we've launched through this time a mentor connector program with our senior clinic directors. Uh, it's kind of been the catalyst to really get that going and make sure our clinic directors feel more supportive, uh, more supported. Uh, because as as Movement for Life grows, I, I'm definitely not as available uh, to 26 clinic directors as I was when there were 15. So that's been the other really exciting thing in my mind that's come out of it is that we have this new group of leaders um, that are working to support our leaders uh, to, to be the best they can and learn and really integrate, I think, in a faster way than we've ever been able to what we've learned in the last six months. So those are the two big things that I'm really excited about today. Yeah, that's great. So what, uh, what would you give advice to a new professional just coming out of uh, school, physical therapy school these days? And, and, uh, you know, they look forward to their career and they want to, um, y- you know, uh, achieve or, or accomplish, uh, uh, a lot. What, what, how do you, what advice do you give them? What, 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 what do you tell them, uh, to, Sure. I would tell them to take any opportunity they're given. I, because as I talked about in my professional path, I don't know what clicked or what lucky star I was under because it wasn't like me to take opportunities that didn't fit into my, uh, you know, very cleanly typed plan on my eight and a half by 11 sheet that I, they just weren't the things I thought I'd do. And I took opportunities that were given to me and at least explored them. I, what was the worst thing that was going to happen? It wasn't going to be a fit. And I think as a new professional, that's what I would do. I would say seek opportunities and try new things because you, you're you so early in your career and there's so much available to you as a physical therapist. You can practice in so many different realms. You can do administrative work. You can. There's so many things to do. Really explore our profession and find what makes you happy because I, I think... Sometimes we're so driven, we forget to find time to really think about, is this fulfilling to me? Is this feeding me? Because if it's not, you should find the next opportunity. Because I think being able that you can use this profession for the entirety of your career and stay in it at, at a time when I think people are changing jobs so often. But as a physical therapist, I think there's so much available to you if you just truly explore the opportunities out there. And another way to say that is be willing to take a risk. Uh, you know, there's that classic risk reward thing where if you just play everything safe and everything conservative, uh, sometimes you don't see those opportunities that are right in front of you. Absolutely. And and that's a uh, just a really great point, Steve, because I, I think what I've also seen as, you know, I've gotten the opportunity to see a couple generations of therapists now, I think this newest generation is very risk averse. And I think the things, at least in my career, that have yielded me the most happiness have all come with risk on some level. So I would just encourage people to lean into that a little bit and it, try it, or at least try it in, in an environment where you can feel s- safe enough. But realize that Jim said something early on to me that's always stuck with me. And it was like, you know, what if the, we're being a clinic director and sharing risk doesn't work out? He's like, well, you still have your license, right? Uh, so I, I just, I think we need to push into that risk a little and discomfort we have uh, by taking risk because I think that's where the opportunity lies. Uh, now, you mentioned your dad earlier as being one of your favorite people in the world. Who else uh, have you looked up to and, and been inspired by uh, 
whether you know them or just know of them? Uh, so I have a lot of different people for a lot of different reasons. Um, my dad is definitely probably the biggest one. Um, Jim taught me early about leadership. Um, we had a CEO, Matt Wild, a long time ago that um, I liked. The, he gave me some of the structure that I that was important to me. He taught me those things. Um, I really like Abraham Lincoln. I just like that he approached things in a new way, and I, I like that he was somewhat ordinary. I just read a book on Harry Truman and I really liked, I love, um, what I didn't really fully understand what he came into as our president. Um, and I just love that he was a very ordinary person with no college background, no, not a lot of formal training, but came into an incredibly stressful four month period for our world. Um, and just led, courageously and authentically and just what he was able to shoulder and carry in that time, I think is very, very admirable. And the way in which he approached it with just some kind of just pragmatism, I I think um, is very admirable. So those are a few of the people that I look up to in history and in my life. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, What are some of the things that, um, um, uh, just really inspire you every day. You get up and it's like, okay, I'm ready to go. What are those things? I think it's little things for me. It's, it's a sunny day outside and I am so, I think gratitude at the bottom line. It's just the things you may think before my kids inspire me every day, just the convert. They're 14 and almost 16 and the way they look at the world and that there's they're kind of coming out of that innocence period, but still innocent where they, they look at the whole picture and they have really good questions that in my mind, I've answered for myself 20 years ago and they push me to look at it a different way 20 years later. Um, so I, I think it's just those little things in life every day that inspire me driving. I love my drive to work. It's a beautiful drive. It's quiet. And just being seen outside because it's a really it's a mountainous drive so I love being outside that inspires me and it just makes me think about the vastness of the world that we get to live in um and the the huge canvas we have if we take the opportunity to see it yeah awesome well usually at this time in the interview Kelly I ask a common question which is in relation to leadership what is a pearl of wisdom that you can leave our listeners with today for me, it's it's being self-aware as a leader, and it's one I have to revisit a lot. I'm kind of doing some reading on that right now, it, and it's just that what are the biases you bring to your daily life and daily conversations, um, and then the second part of that or the thing that I'm finding helps me the most in being self-aware is having those five or six people in your life that can call you on it and that you can go to when the loneliness of leadership gets hard or you're maybe not being self-aware that you can talk to. So having those peers, uh, whether it's for personal or professional things in your life that kind of keep you on that journey to be self-aware. But I think it's a constant learning. It's not, it's not something you decide I'm self-aware for me. It's something that I have to revisit a lot. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Well, uh, Kelly, this has been a, a, just a great, uh, great time to sit and talk with you and discuss uh, some, some uh, ideas with you. And uh, it's been a thrill for me to watch you uh, uh, grow as a leader over the years. Um, you've been very impressive from the start. Uh, you have one of the most 
forward-looking and uh, people-first companies that I'm aware of, and I, I really commend you for continuing that uh, that journey. So uh, congratulations on what you've been able to accomplish and, and continue to do so, and I'm sure there's way more to come in your future. So thanks for sharing that with us today. Oh, well, thank you, Steve. It's definitely an honor to be on your show, and I uh, definitely count you as one of those people I've I've looked to uh, up to and had the opportunity to watch in their career. So thank you. Uh, thank you too. Have a great rest of your day, and uh, we'll catch you down the road. All right, sounds good, Steve. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to another episode of Profiles and Leadership. To listen to all my interviews, subscribe to Profiles and Leadership with Steve Anderson on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and many other popular podcast platforms. Some of these interviews are on video, and you can search YouTube for Profiles and Leadership with Steve Anderson. You can also access the entire library of interviews on my website, orange.coaching.com, and that is orangetheword.coaching.com, and go to the Media Center and click on Podcasts or Video Gallery. You can also enter the website from pilpodcast.com. <music>